Are you looking for your next podcast binge to lose yourself in? Let me introduce you to a story that begins with sweet romance but quickly turns into betrayal and the far-reaching consequences of one man's deceit. It's an account told by the women whose lives were forever changed by it. You probably think the stories about you is a podcast hosted by Brittany Art. And it's not just another podcast. It's an exploration of self-discovery, growth, resilience, and healing. And it's all told in a unique format. And this is why I'm so excited about this one. This is Brittany's story, but she doesn't just host it like a podcast in the traditional sense. Through immersive soundscapes and the voices of the women affected by these events, this podcast creates such a unique experience experience that's going to make your headphones glow in the dark. I can't wait to get started and I hope you'll join me. Listen and follow. You'll probably think the stories about you wherever you listen to podcasts. Intuitive is not always what's accurate and so we really wanted to bring together these different areas of expertise that we had and uh, frame it in terms of answering this question about work-life work balance to the best of our ability. Having balance does not guarantee happiness, but being involved in multiple roles does enhance our well-being. That's Dr. Holly Schifrin and Dr. Miriam Liss, and this is Psychologists Off the Clock. Ever wonder what psychologists talk about over coffee? I'm Dr. Diana Hill, a clinical psychologist in Seaside, Santa Barbara, where I specialize in values and mindfulness-based approaches to therapy. And I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, a clinical psychologist in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, where I specialize in rehab and health psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy. And from coast to coast, I am Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University specializing in evidence-based relationship treatments. In this podcast, we bring psychology research into practice by discussing topics in psychology with experts in the field and with each other. You'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to flourish in our own lives. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. I'm so glad we're here to talk about something that we're all experts in, which is being parents while also trying to manage a work life. Um, on this episode, I had the chance to talk with two psychologists, Miriam Liss and Holly Schifrin, about their book called Balancing the Big Stuff, Finding Happiness in Work, Family, and Life. What I really love about this episode, I got a chance to listen to it uh, over the weekend, and I love how you sort of weave together a lot of the psychological themes and concepts that we've discussed in previous episodes, everything from managing time and role demands to building psychological flexibility, developing and practicing self-compassion, and how all those ideas can really apply to us in our work-life balance. And I also loved listening to this episode, how it really challenges some of the common myths and beliefs that we can have about what it means to work well, parent well, and to have a good balance. And it looks at the actual science behind this. And I think we all carry around myths and put a lot of expectations on ourselves. And so I found it really helpful. This this episode is like a sigh of relief to me. And just to give you kind of a personal anecdote, I listened to the episode on a Tuesday. Tuesdays are my busiest day. I had been working all day, very busy, you know, walked out the door with a whole bunch of things hanging, as I always do. And Tuesdays, I also take a beginner ballet class. And I, I was only home for probably about an hour and a half, leave the kids right as they're sort of getting in the bathtub. And this particular week, my younger child was 
not too happy about me leaving. Um, usually she doesn't mind that much, but she just had a hard time saying goodbye to me. And I felt pretty terrible about it. And I got in the car and listened to it. And I thought, it's okay. You know, I'm doing the best I can. I have a busy day. I'll spend more time with her tomorrow. Um, I actually found out, I asked after I got back home and I found out that she was fine about a minute after I walked out the door. And for me, it was really good that ballet class gives me a way to exercise and take care of myself and learn something that's really important to me. I actually think it makes me a better parent. And so it's really nice, I think, sometimes that to just take a moment to question some of these beliefs that we get into. And we really know that balance is hard. I mean, I think even for people like the three of us, we all are lucky. We have flexible jobs. We have, you know, partner parents with us. And yet we worry, you know, we're stressed. We fall short. We just try to juggle so many things um, that it, it's trying to find that perfect balance is maybe unrealistic. I think it's it's always a work in progress for for all of us who have multiple roles. When I was listening to the episode, I was really reflecting on how much life changes when you become a parent and how expectations also have to change. And I think that what these um, two psychologists offer us is a really kind and compassionate approach in terms of how to shift our expectations as parents, but also not lose, as Yael, you've talked about, uh, sort of our our ambitious selves. And I reflected on when I first became a parent, I was actually running a clinical treatment center that was 40 minutes away from my home. And I remember driving home from work and I'd be on clinical calls and super stressed out and I'd be rushing home as fast as I could to get back to my baby to nurse him. And the stress that I would bring into the door running in, okay, I'm back, I'm here to save the day. And he was actually totally fine. He was with his dad and he'd be like, Googly, you know, totally fine. I thought he was, it was gonna be a mess and how at that time, I, I had sort of the same expectation on myself to be as I was before I became a parent at my work. And then I had the expectation on myself as, as a mother to be as I was before I had gone back to work because I was there 100% of the time before I went back to work. And it's really been an, an adjustment, a calibration over time of how we make those micro adjustments to shift our expectations and, and really focus on what matters. Absolutely. And I can relate to that so much. Um, My own pathway into studying work-family balance um, using clinical psychology and social science began because of how much I struggled. And I was sort of in this great position. I had a very flexible job that I had worked intensely hard to get and I cared very deeply about. But I was surrounded in academia by all of these very ambitious and successful people who also managed from my perspective to be wonderful, loving and devoted parents. And I sort of anticipated, oh, I'll just do it that way. That won't be a problem. You know, I found a daycare that seemed to make a lot of sense. And then lo and behold, once my first child arrived, I kind of fell apart inside. I really didn't know how to be the person that I wanted to be as a professional while also trying to become the person that I wanted to be as a parent. And it was kind of a daily struggle for me for for a good long period of time. And what I ended up doing um, was starting to read a lot. Um, Sort of part of who I am is I really enjoy reading nonfiction and finding exploring the science behind um, challenges and trying to find out clinical tools that can be helpful. 
But what I discovered was that a lot of the books and um, articles about work-family balance uh, had ideas that didn't really match my experience. They were really a lot about leaning in or opting out or, or getting to 50-50, and it sort of wasn't addressing what was really at the root of it for me, which felt more like a, a, a struggle with my identity and who I wanted to be as, as a balanced person. And so it wasn't really until I discovered this awesome literature on work family enrichment that I really kind of felt like, okay, this is this is where I need to go. And then um, sort of in parallel with that, I started reading um, Taoist philosophy, which really talks a lot about yin and yang and how forces that we really think about as being in opposition to one another actually support and help uh, the two forces stay in healthy balance. And so using the science behind work and parenting and Taoist philosophy, I discovered kind of a different approach that really started um, working better for me. And what is so cool is that this book that um, is by Holly Schifrin and Miriam Liss really talks about a lot of these ideas, but from a very scientific perspective. And what's wonderful is that there are different ways to look at what we often just assume is strictly work-family conflict in very different and very helpful ways. And in addition, there's there's some really uh, strategic and practical ways that we can be more effective at work, at home, and in between so that we can manage the tension and live more happily and effectively. Yeah, I love that idea, Yael, and I know you've written about that in some other places. You've written in the New York Times and on your blog. We can link to some of that in our show notes. Um, but this idea of Taoism and how it can feel like a conflict. It often does. You have to make choices. And yet there's a way in which they really do balance each other out. They can feed off of each other and make make us more effective in both roles. I think often, you know, being a parent has taught me patience and many other skills that are helpful in my work. And my work not only gives me a break from the parenting role, but, you know, especially as a psychologist, but I think even if you're not a psychologist, there are sometimes it's nice to, to have some variety, but also you can learn some skills in the workplace that can make you more effective as a parent. And I think it the balance takes a lot of micro adjustments and sometimes macro adjustments. I know for the three of us as co-hosts, we're all, I mean, we're trying to figure out our schedules from coast to coast here and our lives that are very busy and how to record this episode. And I'm at soccer practice or you're at a carnival and how to make it all happen. And I, I really, one thing that has st stuck with me is uh, Kelly Wilson at all of his workshops or many of his workshops, he'll get into a tree pose and then he'll kind of wobble around a little bit and fall over and say, what if, what if falling is part of the pose? And if anyone has, has done yoga, you know the experience of a balanced pose is actually really not static at all. It's a lot of micro and sometimes macro adjustments. And I think that balancing parent and parenthood and working is very much like that. And making your adjustments when you notice you've strayed from your values and having that awareness to, to move back. And also knowing that you can put your foot anywhere you want on your leg. You can put it down at your ankle if you want or way up high and in, that you don't have to look like the cover of a yoga magazine or an Instagram story. You know that this is your life and you get to decide what it's going to look like and you also get to change it over time. I love that. So let's go ahead and hear from doctors Miriam Liss and Holly Schifrin about how, can, how we can more effectively and happily balance our big stuff. 
so excited to talk today with two psychologists who are professors at the University of Mary Washington about their wonderful book called Balancing the Big Stuff, Finding Happy, Happiness in Work, Family, and Life. Dr. Miriam Liss is widely published on the topics of feminism, division of labor, parenting, and child autism and other developmental disorders. She's been interviewed on the topics of intensive parenting and attachment parenting for the Washington Post, for MSNBC, and Live Science. And she recently co-authored a textbook titled The Psychology of Women and Gender that should be coming out soon. Dr. Holly Schifrin specializes in child development, parenting, and early intervention, and has served as the president of the Virginia Academic and Applied Psychologist Academy of the Virginia Psychological Association. She has been interviewed about her research on parenting and well-being for Time.com and for various other newspapers and parenting magazines. Welcome to you both. Hi, thank you. So balance as a professional and parent is something I, like so many working parents, regularly struggle with, and I've become fascinated with the psychology and the science underlying this modern dilemma. You guys came up with this wonderful thesis uh, that you articulated very fully in your book, and I'll read the conclusion from your book, so we'll sort of start with the end. Um, the quote is, it is time to let go of these pressures and to realize that you don't have to be all in in every domain of your life. Good enough is good enough. In fact, it is better. I love this message, and I love that you have so much science underlying this message. So I'd like to sort of just stop, start by getting to know you guys a little bit better and, and find out what, what brought you to, two together to write this book about balancing all the big stuff. Holly and I um, have been working at the University of Mary Washington together for years, and we are both parents. And Many years ago when our children were young, we kind of got into a conversation in the parking lot about all the pressures that parents face and the ideologies of intensive parenting and how hard it is to live up to these expectations of parenthood. So we started a research project on intensive parenting um, and we actually wrote a measure to, talk, to, to think about how parents um, do these intensive parenting practices. And then we transitioned to doing some research on helicopter parenting. Um, so we did a project on that. And then um, we both had our own areas that we were doing on our own. So I was doing some research on gender and feminism and attachment parenting. And Holly has an expertise in positive psychology and well-being. And so we had kind of um, done our projects together and had all these expertise on our own. And then um, our research team was over and we were both on vacation. We're like, oh, take a break. And then the Anne-Marie Slaughter article came out on having it all. Um, and we were reading it. And at the same time, we were getting a little bit of press on the helicopter parenting. Remember right. that? We were getting, people were really interested in what we were talking about with helicopter parenting. And I remember thinking, you know, a lot of people are really interested in these issues of parenting. And there's just this lack of data, right? Mm -hmm. um, about you know all, all the stories, they seem to be more anecdotal. Like we we, we need some actual data. So I, call, I remember calling Holly and said, "Holly, we should write a book." Remember that? I do. And I said, "I thought we were done for the summer. We're taking a break." Like, oh, no, I think we have something to say. Let's let's write a book about this. And she thought I was crazy, but we we did it, and we wrote a book proposal, and it got accepted, and um, we pulled together. And I think that's what made it such a fun process because we pulled together kind of what we've been doing together on intensive and helicopter parenting and um, 
my expertise on feminism and gender equality and Holly's expertise on well-being and positive psychology and kind of worked really hard to figure out, you know, how to pull it together thematically and how to, and, and that's how it came to, came about. So I'm curious, Holly, how, how surprised were you or Miriam, how were you, how surprised were you about how much data there really is? Because it is such a, a narrative driven topic in our, in our public conversation, sort of, you know, how Anne-Marie Slaughter does it or how Sheryl Sandberg does it, how sort of the, the stay at home moms do it. And, and I think we don't talk that much about the data. And yet your book is saturated. So I don't know, how surprised were you guys that there was so much data really exploring some of the myths that we've bought into as a culture about work-family balance? Well, I think that we realized there was a lot. I mean, there was, we went out and found a lot more than we had, um, you know, working knowledge of, but we knew there was a lot of data on it and that, you know, it's not good to be making decisions on anecdotes, even though anecdotes can be very powerful they're not always, uh, what's intuitive is not always what's accurate. And so we really wanted to bring together these different areas of expertise that we had and uh, frame it in terms of answering this question about work-life work balance to the best of our ability. But when it came down to it, we were surprised at how much data and how many references were actually in our book. <laughs> when we looked at our, in, I, I, at the end, we said, oh my goodness, we have 75 pages <laughs> of references. Um, that was probably more than we had anticipated going into it. So... Well, I love... I, I mean, you guys cover so many topics in this book. I mean, you cover, like, you know workplace policy and gender inequality and, um, you know, parenting practices and, you know, most effective workplace practices. So no wonder that there's so many references because you really do cover so many different domains of research. Um, and what I'll also point out that I love, and this is sort of a note for our audience, is that this message is really being sent out in your book to both men and women with the understanding that balancing the roles is an incredibly important challenge for everybody and not just women, even though our public conversation sometimes focuses on the challenges that women have. And I love that you really um, dive into the research on some of the challenges that men encounter and some of the ways that um, we sort of under-discuss the, the, the work-family, work-parenting balances that, that men experience. Um, so um, one of the themes that you repeatedly return to throughout the book is this idea that we've all bought into this myth that more of a good thing is a good thing. And when it comes to work and parenting, more and more um, should, should be good. And yet what we experience on the ground is that it's quite overwhelming and stressful. Um, so can you walk us through how we can understand some of the research about why more of a good thing might not be so good? Holly, do you want to start us out? Sure. Um, we, a couple of years ago, went to a conference and we heard a man named Barry Schwartz speak and talked about this, um, an inverted U-shaped curve and this idea that, you know, we have the sense that things operate in a linear fashion, right? So if you have no money, you're not happy, but if you have more money, you're happier. And the more and more exponentially increasing amounts of money, you'll be happier and happier. And that that is not really how it works in most cases, that there's this um, optimal amount. So having too little, obviously, a, a lot of things, but money is the example I'm using, um, is not good. But there is sort of a, a diminishing return that you're not going to exponentially continue to improve. And so when we heard that, we really started thinking about how that applied to a lot of different areas. And parenting was one of those areas where it seemed to really make sense. We, there's a ton of research on growing up in poverty or growing up in a neglectful home that says that's terrible for children. But is, is it true that 
parenting more and more and more intensively and helicoptering that that is going to ensure your children's outcomes are better. And there's newer research saying that that upper end um, is ne not necessarily better, but there's there's a large area in the middle that could be optimal, but that um, you can go over the tipping point and start having a negative impact on your kids um, if you do too much. Or so the idea is to try to find, you know, what's the sweet spot where um, you're balancing your needs and your children's needs and, and again, other areas of life as well. And, and then once we started to think about that model, we realized that also applies for work, right? So there's a lot of negative outcomes associated with unemployment, especially if you don't want to be unemployed. And so having a job and being engaged in your job, you know, more engagement is better, but up to a certain point. And there's definitely a place where overwork um, leads to negative outcomes and overstress. So we, once we kind of framed it within that inverted U-shaped curve, we realized that it kind of works well for both sides of the work-family balance picture. Yeah, and what I love is that you guys sort of put the the research on overwork and overparenting right next to the myth that we have. So you guys have already mentioned this idea of intensive parenting. So this is um, the label that Sharon Hayes came up with in her wonderful book um, mm -hmm. about this um, sort of pressure that modern parents experience to sort of engage you know, as fully as possible in the parenting process. But what we find on the ground is that that's not actually good for the parent or for the child. And I wonder if you guys could actually talk about some of the research that specifically details the way that some, basically, what is overparenting? How do you know that you're doing it? And why is it bad for kids? Because one would think, you know, if, you, if you love your kids, they love you, isn't being around them, being engaged with them, stimulating them, uh, right. nursing them, carrying them, aren't all those things good? How could there be too much of that? Well, I think the first thing to realize is it's a, it's a very difficult question to answer because every child is different and every parent-child dynamic is different. And so lots of times we get the question, which is, well, how much is the right amount? And right. it's what's really hard about it, it's a moving target because it's different for every parent-child you know, dyad, but it also differs as the child ages. And so I think being aware of the developmental research that talks about what is developmentally appropriate for children at different ages is a starting place. Um, how much responsibility should they have? How much independence should they have? Should they have chores? What type of chores? So just starting with what's the average is for that age, but then you have to tailor that to your particular child. Some children can handle slightly more responsibility younger. Some are going to need that later, you know, not be able to handle as much. And, you know, constantly assessing that as a parent. Um, and it requires being a very sensitive, involved caregiver to know when to step away, to see, oh, they can handle this on their own. I don't need to be involved. So it's not that you're you know, not involved and sensitive and responsive. It's not that you're being neglectful. It's that you're so sensitive and responsive, you can see it's time for me to back off now. They can handle this on their own. The tricky thing is, is that it's the parent parental instinct to do everything that you can to maximize your child's success, be there for your parent. You know, you love them so much that you can't imagine doing anything that would, you know, make things difficult for them. But there is so much data that suggests that, you know, kids do need to fail, right? That it's good for growth to be able to experience failure and learn how to, you know, move through that. That it's good for growth to have unstructured playtime that's not involving parent-directed activities. That, you know, that a lot of what's happened as we've 
increasingly parented more and more is that we filled up children's time, right? Especially among kind of middle class, upper, upper middle class families that have resources for those kinds of activities. And so children's time is more and more scheduled. And all of that is supposed to like enhance growth, enhance brain development, enhance college applications. Um, but we're forgetting that children need that downtime. It's good to be bored, right? And it can be beneficial to fail. And those are some of the things that it's hard for parents to remember, um, you know. I was just saying, as, as, as a parent, I think, you know, your goal is to help your children become fully um, functioning independent adults who are capable of solving their own problems and, you know, facing, persevering in the face of difficulty and those types of things. And if you're always doing everything for them, in that moment, they're probably happy because I'd be happy if somebody did my laundry for me. But <laughs> in the long run, we're robbing them of that of that self-sufficiency um, that they need to be an adult. Right, right. And so I think that that thinking and that data really flies in the face of, face of some of the myths that we have about what the goal of parenting is or what sort of the the pressure to intensive parent is all about, right? We sort of have this idea as parents that we should always um, make our kids happy and allow mm-hmm. them to um, sort of be above average and be stimulated and, and you know, get those college applications in a position where, where they're going to be as competitive as possible. And I think what you guys are saying is that when you look at the data, um, we actually increase our kids' happiness and their well-being and their success when we sort of let go of the in the moment, um, you know, positive emotional experience or the in the moment, uh, you know, success or, or lack of failure. And that what part of what good enough parenting is, is sort of letting go enough to allow your kids to have some of those uncomfortable experiences so that they can develop resilience, so that they can, for example, learn how to tolerate uncomfortable emotions like sadness or disappointment or anger. And stepping in and doing, you know, some of the helicopter parenting approaches actually, um, as you so nicely put it, robs them of those kinds of experiences. Yeah. And one more thing to add is there's an, there's two competing models of parenting that people have talked about. So there's like the carpenter and the gardener. Oh, that's the recent book that came out. I like that. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's kind of related to that. So a lot of parents are trying to kind of, you know, build the child that they have in their mind. Like if I provide all these supports and these activities and do all these right, my children will come out X, Y, and Z in this way. But I think that a lot of data is now showing that children often are going to grow to be the child that they're going to be. And we actually only have so much control over their over their outcomes. A lot of it is just going to kind of happen naturally. And so stepping back a little and just kind of allowing them to grow on their own trajectory um, is healthier for them. So there's a limit to our control. Yeah, right. The other part of the parenting dyad that I think gets really under discussed that I think your book really dives into is sort of what it's like for the parent. The experience of a parent who's pressed to intensively parent and to sort of put their child at the center of every choice and every uh, behavior that they engage in can be really fatiguing. It can be really guilt-inducing. It can be really exhausting. And so, you know, part of this good enough parenting um, uh, idea that you guys are floating is really for the welfare of the parent and 
interestingly enough, the data supports that, you know, healthier, happier parents who aren't, you know, exhausted and, and feeling like parenting really is the hardest job in the world um, do better by their kids. Their kids are happier because the parents are happier, that there's this really uh, bi-directional influence that happens when we kind of step away and, and do some self-care and don't sort of give everything to our children. So I think that's an important part of um, the research that you uh, describe in your book. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, you know, parents are putting in this level of intensive effort, thinking that it's benefiting their kids, even at, they're willing to sacrifice their own, you know, they're, like you said, they're exhausted, they're stressed, they're less satisfied with their lives, according to the research, but they, they think it's worthwhile to make those sacrifices if they can give their child this leg up in the world. And so I think an important message is you're not helping your child in the way that you think you are. So the sacrifice you're making to your own mental health is not benefiting the child you would both benefit from stepping back a little bit and letting things happen a little more naturally, like yeah. you said. And take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so let's sort of dive into the work side of things, because I think that parallel findings emerge when you think about, you know, this pressure to work, to be successful, to make more money, to sort of climb to the top of whatever ladder you're, um, of the whatever world you're living within. And you guys talk, uh, explore a lot of the research that really, um, you know, dismantles that myth. I mean, what, what does it mean to, to work well? What is, what is good enough? And, and so I wonder if you guys could share a little bit about what your findings reveal there. So one of the themes of our book is that um, we have these intrinsic needs that need to be met. And this is true of both the work and the family dimension, right? So um, we have the need for autonomy, so it's this, uh, this need to make our own decisions, right? So um, we don't have to work more and more and more to be happier, but we are gonna be happier at work when we have a little bit of control over how and when we do our work, right? So we have a little bit of flexibility in the job. Um, we have a need for confidence, which is a sense that we are good at what we do. And that doesn't mean working, working, working 24 seven, always being there, but it just means a sense of satisfaction that we, did our job well. And that could be at any level. Custodial staff can have a sense of confidence because they, you know, did a really great job or, you know, and, and feel proud of, of how they did their work, right? Um, and then we have a sense of relatedness. So we have feel connected to other people. We have colleagues at work we can talk to. We can, um, you know, feel like we're relating to other people. So it's not about working more to bring in terms of happiness. Um, it's about working in a way that maximizes those three areas, which, you know, not all jobs are going to have, but to the extent to which we can kind of foster those three areas, we're going to be happier at work. We think that we have to work harder and harder because if we work harder, we'll make more and more money. But we explore a lot of research that says, you know, up to a certain point, money is going to make us happier. But after our basic needs are met and we feel comfortable and we're not stressed about debt, we really don't need to be making more and more and more money to be happier. The inverted U-shaped curve takes over and being focused on money and materialism is related to decreased well-being. Yeah, so you sort of make a pitch for rethinking the, the value of money. And I, and I think that that um, parallels what, um, you know, some other... But Barry Schwartz talks about this in one of his recent books, Why We Work, that it's really not about money. It's about um, meaning and, and connection to other people. 
but that we get so focused on the materialistic piece of it, um, but that we would be much better off if we could sort of take a step back and focus on these three elements that you guys talk about in your book, autonomy, competency, and relatedness as, as sort of a pathway to um, greater happiness and satisfaction. One of the things that you guys talk about in terms of finding the sweet spot is that um, some of the things, and, and you just talked about money, but one of the things that I think is kind of interesting is that um, even things like parental leave, we can have too much of. Even things like workplace flexibility, we can have too much of. And I think, you know, that sort of, I think, can be really surprising because we sort of have this um problem and solution mentality where we see like, oh, the problem is not enough leave, we just need more. But that even that is more nuanced in terms of that too much of it could be too much and that too little is obviously too little, but that there's some sort of a sweet spot that, that may differ person to person, but that we, you know, this sort of um, very uh, coarse idea of just trying to get more and more and more doesn't actually work to our benefit. So I wonder if you can actually talk about sort of even in the context of something as that we assume is so positive, like parental leave, how can we understand the way that even that needs to find its sweet spot? What's the research there? Well, I think, you know, in the U.S. we have no guaranteed parental leave, uh, at least paid parental leave. And there is research here saying that that is detrimental. It's very hard. I mean, some mothers, if you don't, if you can't afford your unpaid 12 weeks of leave and you have to go back to work immediately, that's quite difficult for the mother, quite difficult for an infant to be left. In contrast, at the other end of the continuum, we have countries that will allow like three years of parental leave um, and be able to come back to your job. And what in those countries where it's so lenient, um, it seems like you know it, it penalizes women. People don't want to give them jobs because they know that they're eligible for this time off, this extended time off, and so it actually makes it harder for women to get good jobs. And I and I feel like if I'm remembering correctly, about six months was you know around six months to a year was sort of the yeah. optimal amount of time that yeah. allowed the mother to stay home and you know maybe breastfeed if that's possible and and be there nurturing the infant um, through the early months but not be out of the work for so long that it they were un, you know horribly penalized for that and just to add on to that another thing we noticed with leave is that many leave policies are designed solely for mothers mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and that's inherently problematic because with if it's women who are seen as the only people who could possibly be responsible for taking care of children. That means that all policies are going to say, oh, women get this as a special benefit for women, which is going to disincentivize any employers from hiring women or wanting to promote them to high positions because they may take leave. So policies that are more gender neutral, that have paternal leave, that have leave that's really unrelated to childcare, that says you can take leave for personal reasons or work flexibly for you know, a variety of, of reasons that is a less gendered seems to be better, at least if, if equality is your goal. <laughs> yeah. One other thing that I'll sort of tack on to this is that through some interviews that I've done with, um, with working parents, um, it's sort of the topic of parental leave has come up because I've done these interviews with people that work in, in various countries. And in some countries where there is a longer leave, um, individuals will talk about sort of how personally difficult it is to sort of be missing out on some of the things that the workplace offers and that there's this sort of pressure to take the leave and be home with the child when what they might really prefer is to have more of their own sweet spot balance of working and parenting and that um, there there can be sort of that 
surprising um, drawback to having more leave be available and that, you know, even if you take it and enjoy some of the parenting, you might be really missing out on, you know, some opportunities to let the ambitious side of your nature be fulfilled. And so that can be a personal challenge. And I think, I think um, your book does a really good job of sort of talking about how the challenges and the benefits can exist on on so many different levels, right? It can be sort of like your employer um, needing to sort of help out by creating more flexibility, but it can also be an individual challenge in, in terms of like figuring out how to see things, it, how to understand things, how to view things and, and sort of appreciate the, the gifts that are inherent in the balance versus sort of seeing it as a glass half empty kind of a phenomenon. So that, you know, some of the ways that we can figure out how to find balance come from our infrastructure and some of the ways that we find balance come from the individual choices that we make, even if the choices are just attitudinal. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and there's some interesting data about, about leave um, that I've recently come across that says that a lot of men are very interested in leave and interested in being there for, for their children, but they are much less likely to formalize it or even tell people Mm -hmm. what they're doing. So they'll kind of sneak out of the office and um, go to the go to the basketball game, or you know, you know, support their children, but they don't they don't announce it, and they're very subtle about it. And women are much more likely to take formal leave that are that is offered to them, and it's much more public. But that kind of gives the impression that it's women who are doing all this leave, and so that you know that women are less interested in their careers. But actually, both men and women are really interested in being there for their children. Um, it's just that the culture of masculinity makes it. Um, was appropriate for, you know, or acceptable for men to be more open about it. But if men were more open about it, um, and then it could be more open conversation about how we all need to have this balance, you know, it's okay to leave early, everybody. And and if the, you know, top executive boss was like, hey, I'm leaving early, you know, I have to, you know, be there for my kid. I think it would create a workplace culture where these conversations could could happen in a more flexible way. And um, everybody could kind of have that work-family balance. Um, and that had to be less gendered. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you also talk in your book about happiness and that having work-life balance doesn't necessarily mean that you have happiness. I mean, that that's kind of an interesting statement in and of itself that I think um, is important to sort of discuss. I mean, why not? If we, if we have both work and family and there's some balance, like we get to participate in both, why wouldn't we be happier? Well, I think it partially comes back to what Miriam was saying about the um, autonomy, competence, and relatedness. So you might have a job that maybe even pays your bills, but if it's, you know, you have no choice in what you're doing or how you're doing it, when you're doing it, where you're doing it, you might not be happy at your job. Um, likewise, you may have children at home, but again, if it if you're um, sacrificing your autonomy. You can't do the things you want. You want to be working, but you're at home or it sacrifices your relationships. You feel isolated. You've lost touch with, you know, your other friends who are still working or it, you know, if it limits your competence because you feel like you're not using the degree that you earned or that you're not doing a good job as a parent. And so even as a parent, you don't feel competent. Um, You might have these roles, but you might not uh, feel happy and fulfilled in them. Yeah, so so getting back to that idea of competence and autonomy and relatedness and how important those constructs are to finding happiness is really 
pretty core, that it's not just finding enough hours to work and finding enough hours to parent. It's really about making sure that you feel like you have some choice and some skill and some connection to people that you care about that really is what engenders happiness. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, before we wrote this book, I before I came to Mary Washington, I had a job working in the private sector and I made a choice to take a about a third of my pay cut to come and work in academics. Yay, academia. <laughs> more autonomy, you know, autonomy was a lot of it because I mean, that that work environment, mm-hmm. there was so high pressure and I had no control over my schedule, no control over my time. And I had started a family. And so I was way out of balance in that way. And so I, you know, I made that choice to come and work in this environment where I really have great relationships, where I have a lot more autonomy and I do, you know, generally feel competent (laughs) in what I'm doing. I would like to point out though, that there is data that shows that um, having balance does not guarantee happiness, but being involved in multiple roles does enhance our well-being. So it's kind of this data that's in contrast to this idea that if you have work and you have family, they're going to necessarily be in conflict with each other or that like life is a pie and that the more we put on work, that means the less we put on family. And there's actually data that shows that people kind of rise to fill the, the roles that they have so that we feel more enriched on average. Um, this isn't going to be the formula for everybody, but on average, people feel more enriched if they are multiply engaged in different domains in life. And that work and family don't have to be seen as against each other, but they can actually have positive spillover effects where work can benefit family and family can actually benefit work life. Um, And so we don't have to necessarily see it as a zero sum game. Um, So having both and having balance between the two is not a guarantee for happiness, but being engaged in multiple roles is related to higher levels of well-being. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I, that, that is um, a literature that I'm just fascinated by because I think that we always think about this idea of role strain and work family conflict. But when we look at the data, there's a lot of evidence suggesting that when, as you're saying, we're involved in multiple roles, there is a result of this role enhancement. And in contrast to sort of this idea of work family conflict, there's also a growing literature um, suggesting that work and family have an enriching relationship. And And it isn't either or. They sort of both exist simultaneously, that these roles can kind of bump up against each other and create some tension between each other. And at the same time, there can be this positive spillover effect, this additive effect of having all these important roles that contribute to our life's meaning. Yeah. And and, and it makes sense because the more you're doing, the more opportunities you have to feel confident, the more relationships you have uh, the ability to develop, um, the more opportunities for autonomy or choice that you might have. Right. And as I was reading your book, I was thinking about, you know, if you had a workplace where autonomy was really limited, like you had, you know, a supervisor who was a micromanager and your schedule was just really set, that having a, you know, a parenting role where you in theory could have some more autonomy would actually just give you more opportunity to get that. So when you have major restrictions in one of your life roles, it may be possible to get at some of those, you know, competencies or uh, areas of autonomy or even even relatedness that are unavailable in the other role. So as you're saying, you just have more of an opportunity to get at some of those core um, areas that give rise to more happiness. Right, exactly. Um, And so you finish your book by describing this, um, this is again, one of my favorite um, literatures, the positive psychology literature on happiness and sort of how we get to happiness. Um, And you talk um, the reader through sort of 
the pie of happiness, sort of what parts are genetic, what parts are um, circumstantial, and what parts are attitudinal. And then you give readers sort of some suggestions for how to find more happiness in whatever the balance is. So I wonder if you guys could talk a little bit about some of those um, exercises that you suggest for readers looking to build greater happiness in their work-life balance. Sure. So the happiness pie really is Sonia Libermirsky's work out in California. And she summarized the research and said that about, you know, 50% of your happiness is genetic. And you have this kind of happiness set point that you want to hang around, sort of like you have a weight that you want to hang around, you know, it comes from your genes. Um, and then, but about 50% is, uh, you know, under some sort of environmental influence. And so people think that their circumstances have a lot to do with happiness. People spend a lot of time thinking like, oh, if I just made more money, if I just could move to a tropical island, which I still think, but I know isn't true. Uh, <laughs> if I, you know, all of these things, if I could just change these circumstances in my life, I'd be happier. And the research says that most of those circumstances don't matter. There's a few that do, like religious people tend to be happier, married people tend to be happier. There's a few that do, but even when they do influence your happiness, it's a very small piece of this pie. It's about 10%. And the other 40% is what um, you have more control over that uh, we talk about as the intentional activities, doing specific, these specific exercises to try to increase your happiness, just like you would do exercises to try to adjust your weight, maybe below the set point where your body wants to be. Um, you might have to do these exercises to increase your happiness above the point where your set point wants to be. And you have to keep doing the exercises or else you kind of drift back to your set point. And so um, a lot of the activities that we talk about relate or relate to relatedness that we were that we were saying is this really key element. So um, there are some like showing gratitude is one uh, exercise that's really been shown to be predictive of happiness. And so it can be something simple like counting your blessings. Um, it can be keeping you know a journal or a gratitude journal type of thing. But one exercise that's really effective is writing letters of gratitude to people in your life. And so um, I think love that. About, write that letter and you give that to that person. How that. Um, can help build the relationship that you have with, you know, with this other individual. And so, I um, mean, even if you don't give it to them, if you're just thinking, I am grateful for these people in my lives, that still is probably going to make you want to reach out to that person, spend time with them and build a relationship. So that's one. Um, another one is savoring. And so one of the reasons why we, we drift back to our set point is that we habituate to things. So, we get used to it. Like you think, oh, when I get that new raise, I'm going to be so happy. And, and maybe when you first get it, you are for, you know, the first paycheck, the second paycheck, but then all of a sudden you've just spent that money and you're used to it and you don't get a boost from it anymore. And so things you can do to try to offset that kind of habituation, um, savoring is one of those things where you're really intentionally focusing on the positive, whether it's savoring a memory of, you know, a vacation you took, whether it's savoring the moment, a sunset, um, savoring your food by closing your eyes and really focusing your senses on what you're eating. There's a lot of different ways. Savoring a future event, thinking of anticipating a vacation. There's a lot of research on that um, being, you're even happier before you take the vacation than when you're actually on vacation. Um, but you know that kind of savoring exercise can offset the habituation, but it can also contribute to your relationships if you're savoring As time a joint with a activity, one, yeah. yeah, memories of a vacation you took in the past with someone, you know that sort of thing. Um, we also talked about uh, a, a sort of a related to that type of savoring is um, something called active constructive responding when somebody tells you good news that you really 
um, are excited for them and celebrate with them, share that news with others and that sort of thing. And that's something that really builds relationships and increases happiness as well. Um, there were a couple others on relatedness, but do you want to talk about some? Yeah, uh, a few of my favorite techniques have to do with the um, <laughs> ideas of mindfulness and self-acceptance. So, um, I mean, mindfulness is getting a lot of attention, and sometimes I think people see it as just another thing you have to do today. Right? Yeah, right. Put it on the list. Be mindful. It's <laughs> um, like a pressure, right? But I think that um, if you don't see it as this like thing you have to do in order to, you know, be modern and cool, but as a real mindset of trying to pay attention to kind of where you are in the moment, you know, not get distracted or lost in social media. Um, which is a whole other issue. Um, and also having an attitude of self-acceptance and acceptance of those around you, because a lot of times we feel like what we're doing is wrong or bad, or we have self-judgment and self-criticism. And so mindfulness is both the practice of being aware of the present moment, including your bodily sensations and what's going on around you, but also being accepting. So I've been a big fan of what's really kind of helped me kind of increase my happiness, I think, is really working on kind of acceptance. And, you know, if I do something wrong or I mess up, you know, to realize, you know, that's all right. You know, it's, it's all part of the process and nothing, nothing lasts forever. And I don't have to be so hard on myself. And the feelings that I have are, are fine. Um, and, and they're going to pass. Um, so that's been really helpful, because I think a lot of the, a lot of the pressure of feeling like, oh, we have to balance work and family just right is this notion that that you're always self-critical that you're doing it wrong. And I think if you can take a more self-accepting attitude, um, and there's a lot of great literature on self-compassion, um, which is kind of related to mindfulness. Yeah, and then, then we have a couple podcast that, episodes on self-compassion, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Very in vogue. <laughs> I yeah. think if you think about, you know, there's such a broad way to, to be okay. You know, there's, yeah. you, know you are you know, you're doing just fine, probably the way you are. And yeah. that, people tend to be so hard on themselves. So well, I love that strategy as a specific strategy. And also it's so fitting with the message of your book, because what you guys talk so much about is that there's a lot of right ways to do things. And that really the thing that defines that it's right is that it's working well enough for you and that seeking perfection or seeking, uh, you know, avoiding failure really isn't a very useful strategy. And in fact, the better strategy is just to sort of be comfortable with where you're at and find happiness with with sort of good enough and, and not to worry so much about, um, you know, whether there's imperfections in the mix. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, you um, Miriam, you kind of started us off on this last topic, but I'm, I'm curious um, if there are other areas where, where you or where Holly um, have made changes in your own approaches to balancing all of your big stuff after putting together this wonderful book. Well, I definitely think the self-acceptance piece. And also, I've been working really hard to kind of be accepting of other people. I have a lot of friends who have very different choices that they've made. I have friends who, you know, much more focused at work, friends who are stay-at-home moms, and, you know, moving beyond this idea of the mommy wars, right, that we all have to be, like, judging each other for our choices. And I think that focusing on, on just knowing, like, there's so many wide range of what is good and what works for one person isn't going to work for the other. So in terms of my own just approach to life. Writing this book has really helped me with both the self-acceptance and trying to take a non-judgmental attitude towards others. 
in terms of balancing in my life, I mean, I, I am very much attuned to division of labor and equality within the home. Um, and that's not necessarily something that writing the book changed, but um, something that it really has drawn focus to. I try very hard to kind of keep things equal. Sometimes I think my husband does too much. He does. <laughs> so the other day I tried to cook dinner. It was, he, he usually cooks. And I was like, <laughs> right? like, Get out of my kitchen. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work so well, actually. <laughs> so but I, I've been trying to, you know, just kind of attend to um, equality within the home and also appreciating what other people are doing, you know, like that, 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 that we're a team and that, um, you know, we try to share things equally, but it doesn't have to be 50%, 50-50, super, super equal, but that we really kind of respect and appreciate what, what we each bring into the family. So um, the pieces of this book that have resonated the most with me, besides kind of personal well-being stuff, has always been the kind of gender equality piece, especially among the division of labor. I think for me, it's something I've been really intentional about is um, trying not to helicopter parent or over-parent and allow my children to have um, more independence and the opportunities to fail and to have natural consequences for, you know, what they're going through. And it, it's hard to do because it's very easy to get sucked in because other parents, you're, they're, what, their kids' private lessons and they're tutoring and they're doing their projects for them and sending in the quality. I mean, I couldn't even do the quality of projects some of these parents send in for their kids. But, um, you know, I, I have really tried to instill in my kids that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go into the class and ask for something for you. And what I want you to know is, you know, in the end, if you win that award or you get moved up that level or whatever, whatever it is, you have earned that. It wasn't because I went in and pitched a fit or volunteered, you know, my services in some way that you, it's your work and you've earned it and you will feel good about that. Likewise, if you forget your homework, then I'm not going to run it up and that will be the natural consequence for that. And as a result, I think, you know, I have a daughter in high school now. She's extremely responsible. She's very well in school. Um, you know, I think it's worked out well for her. But that being said, if I had a child who was struggling, I probably would step in and be more involved. I'm not saying don't, you know, and I'm not saying I'm not involved at all, but just um, I've really tried to be intentional about letting them um, handle everything that they could handle. And hopefully that will prepare them well for college. Holly's definitely an inspiration to me on that. My kid, I, I sometimes think I do a, too much for my kids still, despite all the research and all the knowledge. I, I am slowly moving back and giving them more and more responsibility. And Holly will always say, I stopped making lunches for my kids like years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of still make lunches. <laughs> so we've had a lot of conversations and, and she's better about Right. But pulling back on the parenting than me and I and I'm I'm still working on that. <laughs> yeah. Well it's it's strange how hard it is to do less. And I think that that is one of the important take-home messages. I've I've become really interested in Taoist philosophy, which is all about doing less. I mean, there's this whole concept of non-action. And I just I think there's so much value in it that that is so hard to manifest in our modern life. And so I think that applying it to things like parenting or even work and sort of just figuring out like how do we take a step back and allow some of the natural processes to get us to the next 
phase or to a better place. Um, and if we can do that, we often find that there's real magic there and it doesn't require us to sweat or toil or be miserable in the, as we get there. Um, and I think that that's such a good example of, you know, maybe we just don't make lunch and maybe our kids, you know, figure out how to manage when they forget, forget their lunch or, or what have you. And maybe they're uncomfortable, but maybe that actually serves them well in the long run. Um, and so if we can do that without sort of beating ourselves up or, or shaming them, then, then we really are served and they really are served by that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. All right. So thank you guys so much. It's been such an honor to talk with you. We'll link on our website to um, where you can buy the book. I think it's now available in paperback. Um, it's a wonderful read. And um, we'll also link to your university web pages if you guys want to find out more about Miriam and Holly and their wonderful research. Um, and thank you guys so much. It's, it's been wonderful talking with you. It's been great thank talking you. to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. Music by John Gu and Susie Stevens. And special thanks to our creative producer, Dr. Meg McKelvey. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you are looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our website. Our website is offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclockpsych.com.